This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Hilary glassman Deal, teacher of STEM communication at the Center for Academic English, Imperial College, London. Her book, Science Research Writing for Native and Non-Native Speakers of English, was published in 2021 by World Scientific. This is the book's second edition. There is a blurb on the back cover of science research writing that reads, This book should be on every STEM academic's bookshelf. And with all due respect to my guest today, I read the blurb and I filed it away under blurb superlativees. Then I began reading. I hadn't exited the Roman numeral pages before I paused and fully acknowledging my mistake, refiled the blurb under The Truth. This book belongs on the STEM academic shelf, It belongs in the STEM academics' hands. That's it. The excellence of this book proves itself in the reading, and in particular proves itself in the using. Because yes, it's true, good writing is hard work. But with this book, Science Research Writing, you know what you're doing is the right kind of hard work. And so every moment will count toward better writing for your research. Here, just take a quick flash preview Hilary Glassman-Deal, in her own words, on the methods section. Note that in the sentence, using a revised version of the method established by the Illinois Sustainable Technology Center, the method used by the writer is not identical to the cited method. Comparison between your materials and methods and those of other researchers in the same field are an important topic in the methods section. Your method may be identical to others you mention, option one, similar, option two, or significantly different. When yours is significantly different to existing methods, the difference may represent the key contribution of your study, option three. These comparisons form part of a central feature in all STEM research writing, mapping a study onto existing literature and knowledge in order to identify its contribution. The literature in the field is a thread that runs through a research article from beginning to end, starting in the introduction by setting out the research background to the study, 
The thread is picked up in the methods and results sections by comparing your methods and results with others, and eventually, in the discussion conclusion section, by identifying the contribution your study has made to the existing knowledge and literature on the topic. And if I may, just one more quick flash preview, again, Hilary glassman deal in her own words, but this time on the results section. When you start to do original research, you cross an invisible line. Until this point, you were writing for people, tutors or course leaders, who knew more about the subject than you did, and who knew what they expected to see in your report. Your task was to describe your methods and results to readers who already knew what methods you would use, what results you should obtain, and how those results compare with those in other studies. By contrast, a defining characteristic of research is that it must make a new contribution to the field and your communication must identify that contribution. That is Hilary glassman Deal from her book, Science Research Writing. This is Hilary glassman Deal on scholarly communication. Hi, Hilary. Welcome. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me. Interesting to hear your own words spoken out loud, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably slightly disorienting. <laughs> I, I, I would like to pick up, though, with that last quote, your own words, uh, the one about the results section, because... It broaches a really big question concerning education of STEM researchers, and that is, of course, also education of STEM writers, which is your target audience in your book. Um, The opening sentence definitely catches my attention when you say, when you start to do original research, you cross an invisible line. (laughs) Well put. (laughs) Um, Because that invisible line is just a thing that I'd like to refer to now. Um, But just quickly to the other words that catch my attention, your readers knowing more about the subject than the writer, than you, the readers having a clear expectations of the writing, because it would appear that this invisible line is crossed when the writer knows more, and when the writer is the one who's also setting the expectations to sort of take the opposite end of things. Does that, that sound about right? It's, well, it's, it's an interesting issue, isn't it? I mean, this idea that until the point where you actually do make some kind of contribution, most of your writing and your, your, in your writing history, uh, which has an emotional impact on you, is done in order to display rather than actually communicate. So you're displaying to somebody that you've done what was expected of you. But uh, and nobody trains you at all for crossing that invisible line to the point where you have to, where suddenly the requirement for for accuracy and communicative competence take a massive leap forward because until or unless you can communicate your new contribution or the advance that you have made accurately and meaningfully, it, it kind of doesn't exist until you until you manage to do it and do it properly. So this, this that particular invisible line is one that unfortunately most people are forced to cross with their eyes closed because there's so little training about how to move from displaying in your, I don't know, high school, undergraduate career, master's career, and suddenly needing to inform people about something that they did not know before or in a way that they didn't understand it previously. So it's it's tough. It's a tough moment and it's a moment that tends to go unremarked and unnoticed and therefore people are not training themselves for it. 
Yeah, or being trained, which yeah. is really the, the sad truth. Of the the um, Chicago writing program talks about a very similar. I love the way you put it with display versus communicate. They they talk about explain as being your display. So never explain things. What they actually mean, it sounds crazy because people think, yeah, well, I, my hypothesis is meant to be an explanation. How am I not supposed to explain things? But I mean, I would like to just perhaps pursue this idea a little bit more because I think very many STEM students would need to get this idea. And what Chicago means and what you seem to be my display is you switch over into teaching mode. I mean, you have up until your early 20s received nothing but teaching <laughs> and, and and knowledge coming to you in that form of being instructed, being improved, if you like, even, right? Being readied for something that you'll then actually be doing. That That is the mode that then we you know, very many students are going to assume knowledge is communicated in, but it's precisely not, is it? It it definitely isn't. And I think that it extends beyond the the student life. It, It has tendrils all the way into the research writing because what happens in a in a when a when a research paper is produced is that the people around the core writers are colleagues. They, they too understand the aim of this particular study, the implications of the findings, um, the, they have a similar level of background knowledge, and therefore it's quite difficult for the, for the writer, even in a research group, to gain that level of objectivity where they're actually communicating outward rather than communicating with their micro-community, if you like. So if you can think about it, there's, there's almost three steps to well to certainly two distinct steps that need to be taken first of all of course it's the movement from writing a uh, writing a report for my course leader to being able to communicate new content but then even when you're in the research environment even when you are quite a high level researcher it's quite difficult to understand to to have the imagination if you like to understand who your potential readers might be, not just now, but in the future. And given how interdisciplinary science is becoming, you really do need to think forward what their level of background knowledge might be and what kind of assumptions you can make about it. Because if you make your assumptions too generously because you're afraid of looking condescending or patronizing when you explain things, then that loss of explanation is going to make some of your content inaccessible. So it's then it's kind of having the imagination to think about who are my potential readers, what might they know, what might they not know, how much, what can I assume about their knowledge, even about their use, the use of acronyms, things like that. So that's, if you like, that's another another invisible line that you have to cross in terms of externalizing what you've done in the lab or with your research group out to the research community, given that you don't know, in the age of the internet, you no longer know who your readers or consumers are going to be. No idea. So there's a, there's a lot of issues here around these kind of minimalistic assumptions that you don't have to make for, for a course tutor to a slightly higher level of assumptions when you start to write research. But then there's a big push, or there should be, when you think about the consumer of your research and who might be accessing it and what might they know already 
and also where where this paper might lead. I mean, frankly, Daniel, who in I don't know, in the in in, in the in a tiny micro community about I don't know, let's say malaria vaccines could have imagined that parts of their work would have become important for the World Health Organization, for example, and would need to be read by a range of non-experts or people from other disciplines or people working in neural networks and artificial intelligence or data management even. I mean, this gets really right straight to the central method of, of your book, this this idea of reverse engineering. And I, I, before we perhaps tease out that idea, I would like to stick a little bit more on this mentality of the STEM researcher and also the situation of the STEM student in education. Um, mm. You say that your research doesn't properly exist until it's communicated. And that that statement actually captures much of what you're saying, for me anyway, when, when you talk about the imagination necessary to see for whom might this work actually have value? Yeah, Not even just tomorrow, but as you say, near future, slightly long-term. I don't know what long-term is anymore in today's technological, <laughs> technological <laughs> scientific race, uh, but, but, but just the many different places where it could end up or the many uses it could have has to be and it's pre-programmed into the communication of it. And, and, and to get back to the statement that it doesn't exist until it's communicated, I can imagine the hair standing up on lots of STEM <laughs> researchers next when they hear that sort of thing, although the saying is quite common. I mean, I mean, all sorts of people have, 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 have referred to that, but the actual implication of it, I don't know if it has, has been properly sort of drawn out because you're already doing that, I find, when you say, okay, now use your imagination, right? Where are the overlaps? Who could possibly be picking this up? It's, it has implications also for, I mean, given the way that we now, that scientists now access research, which is via the, it's title scrolling on the internet in the main, is that most people that I work with spend a, a heck of a, a lot of time just scrolling through titles, throwing in various keywords and seeing what pops up. And that being the case, you can see that things like titles suddenly have much more importance and if you have a uh, let's say a well fairly standard titles which are not titles at all but begin with words like an investigation into that kind of title might just end up sitting gathering dust on the internet shelf whereas the content of what you've done the outcome of that investigation which is not apparent in the title but is buried deep in the text that no one picks up that content might be hugely important. So when I say it's not so much that it doesn't exist until it's communicated, it doesn't exist until it's communicated well enough for other people to understand it. Let's let's add that rider. Because otherwise, the only person that can benefit from it or move on from it is you, is the writer. And and the terrible truth is is in science, that's no yeah, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you can't work alone in science. I mean, that much, I'm sure every researcher is going to, you know, emphasize and believe. Yeah, and look, I mean, science is developing almost faster than it even can be reported. It's so fast now. And, and minimizing that kind of lab to journal 
period or that or that uh, that that first the first from the first moment you start to put it together until it's published minimizing that period of time is key you don't want it to keep jumping back at you via peer reviewers who don't understand who weren't able to to see the alignment let's say between the research aims as stated and the conclusions things like that fairly basic things like that so getting these things right if you want science to continue developing forward and you want global access to science and you want the best researchers in the world to be involved in the projects that you're working on, then you do need a, a fairly high level of communicative competence. And that brings me to the question that sort of led us into uh, into these weeds <laughs> is, uh, is, is about education. I mean, it is so entirely clear. Your book makes a perfect uh, statement, and I would probably just as an aside like to say that your book uh, stylistically is so wonderfully crisp and clear. Um, I mean, I've seldom I've seldom read a book where I haven't had to backtrack at least a word or two, and, and, and this was one of those books where that just didn't happen. I, I mean, you you live what it is that you're telling the people that they can do, and and I find I find that also admirable because there are good guides out there which don't necessarily also show what it could be like. Um, but but that's merely an aside. <laughs> uh, but important for people who want to read the book as well. But about, about the education, I mean, the, the case is made so, uh, the case hardly needs to be made, but it's made so clearly in the book that speed matters. And it's not about speed in the sense of, yeah, okay, um, advancing my career and so on. It's about the speed. It, it's, some of that is involved, but it's also the way science works. This, this is just the truth of the matter. And that brings me back to the issue of education. Are we not missing an enormous opportunity when we, for instance, have people in STEM writing a PhD thesis that they'll write once and they'll never write again and is a format which they'll never need and makes no sense because they can't even see how it is that they're supposed to do it right yeah <laughs> yeah i mean training training people to write a phd thesis is in a sense a non-starter because as you point out they're only ever going to have to do it once and the the with each phd thesis is so different from the one before i know that in certain countries i think i believe in australia your stem phd thesis can be more or less a collection of your papers, of your published papers. So the models are are different from one country to the next, and they will be changing all the time. We do run, I mean, at Imperial, the Centre for Academic English with the Graduate School, we run a thesis writing retreat. And it's quite an interest, for me, it's always interesting to participate in that because everything exactly what you're saying, which is that they've never... These are people who have never had to write an extended document before. They never will have to write such an extended document again. There is minimal training for how to construct and create it. And I think we were talking before, Daniel, about whether you can access existing PhD theses. I assume that within any university, you can access a fair number of them. But realistically, who is going to wade through 50 PhD theses or even 10 to get an idea of what is appropriate structurally in terms of of depth of content, in terms of of technical detail. And as I said, in many cases, certainly in STEM, many theses are embargoed. You can't access them because the intellectual property issues are are so important. So it's it's certainly 
an, an issue. But having said that, the thesis itself as a written document, perhaps as a result of the fact that you're never going to do it again, is not considered to be an important document in terms of your writing skills, let's say. Don't forget that most PhD theses are read by the supervising member of staff. That's the primary reader. And although you will have an outside or external reader, it's, you don't have the whole world as you do when you write a paper. When you write a paper, you've no idea who's going to read it and you've no control over who's going to read it or, or what its value is going to be, where it's going to go. With a thesis, it's a little bit different. I think that the things that we do to train our our PhDs, for sure, in um, effective writing and our courses in the courses that we have in writing a research paper. Certainly that's a research paper is a microcosm in some sense of a thesis. So the fact that we certainly are running courses at Imperial at the Centre of Academic English on how to write a research paper for publication and we do that for postdocs as well and for research groups, that can be, it is a microcosm and the, what we're doing there certainly can be extended out. I mean, the parallels are, are, are fairly obvious, I think. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not convinced that the thesis itself is worth, I mean, as you said, it, I don't know if it's worth training people to write a thesis. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, when you start, stop to start to think about the amount of time that uh, you know students are spending on certain tasks, and mm. and when you consider real education, and you wonder, are they wasting their time? Are we making them waste their time? That's uh, that's one of those things. Oh, and you, that you've, topic, that's a huge topic, isn't it? It is. It is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, your book, to, to get a, a bit more into your book and also to the um, Center for Academic English, which you've referred to a few times, uh, listeners will know um, you've been on the show before. And that brings me to uh, another area involving education. And, and it brings us also, though, closer to the book, which we'll get to at some point <laughs> um, in English for academic purposes, there are essentially two schools, two camps, the yeah. specific purposes and the general purposes. And um, when you get into the specific purposes, um, I'm not saying this also to you only, uh, Hillary, clearly I'm also giving it out to the le uh, listeners so that they have a context of, to understand my question. Um, the, in the specific purposes, you end up with the sort of conundrum that people talk about when okay, you've got on the one hand the disciplinary expert and on the other hand the English for Academic Purposes um, professional who is, let's say, the rhetorical expert, the writing expert. Um, I've sort of talked about since our interview of the the imperial method, as I've kind of called it, which sounds sounds a bit colonial in a way, but uh, that's not it's not what it's not what it's meant to encapsulate. But I've talked about it with a few scientists who I know, and it's interesting to see what they bring up um, as concerns. They mention things like, "Yes, great, very interesting." The writing professional though would certainly want to defer to the scientists. Uh, when they knew better, this was one sort of comment that encapsulates an entire mentality. I'm throwing these out there so that you can uh, take them up. I'm very interested to hear what you'd have to say about them. A more detailed response was along the lines of um, exemplary work. Fantastic. I like the idea with a few caveats, one of them being that there's a very good chance that the writing professionals, the uh, English or academic purposes people, um, may be missing things 
in the um, in the rhetoric because they're only focusing on the rhetoric. In other words, we get back again to this issue of the content side. And this person's particular worry was that you may be always a few steps behind the trend and not be understanding where uh, this particular sort of study in biology or in microbiology or even more specific actually needs to head because your eye is only there for, for the rhetoric. You would need perhaps a third party involved, a sort of fact checker was, was the suggestion to, to, to rectify that situation. Um, and the list goes on from there, but I think that's already enough for us to, to to go with to perhaps explore this idea of what it is that the English for specific purposes person can actually do with your method of reverse engineering. Well, there are two there are two directions that our work goes in. One is training early stage researchers. In, the, in this strategy of reverse engineering, not to create mo- fixed models or templates, but to create um, a safe space, if you like, first of all, to start from, and secondly, to train them to be able to see how to update models and patterns as the research in their field develops. So that's what once, one area that we work in is and our work is always very individualized. So if we've got 15, if we're doing a training course, let's say with 15 researchers, each in different fields, we'll be training them to look at the research in their own field, the current research in their own field as benchmarks. So it's not us ever imposing generic models. It's us showing a generic model and encouraging the people that we're working with individually to look at the extent to which the the research in their field aligns or does not align with those models and how it's developing in relation to those models and how they're going to update it in future. So the training aspect is is trying to future-proof people on the basis of understanding that that the models may change. So one area is starting to train people in this process of reverse engineering as a lifelong skill. And once you start training people to do that, they can use that training for, for, for anything, for grant proposals, technical reports, almost anything once they start to understand that it is mutable, that it changes and it changes quite fast over time. So not to get hidebound, not to get locked in, locked in. So it's not us asking people to use a model. It's us training people to develop their own models for their own field. And on on the background of, let's say, generic models, looking for similarities and differences. But the thing that I found very interesting in your in this idea of the subject knowledge expert and the subject knowledge outsider is when it comes to working on a specific paper with the STEM professional. It's interesting that I, I mean, my feeling was looking that a lot of people are considering this as a, a potential. There's a potential for if you like, remote editing. In other words, you get sent um, a a paper 
and theoretically your knowledge as an EAP or ESAP professional should enable you to improve that paper. I, I do not buy into that in the slightest, to be honest. I've never done it. I've never tried remote editing or working remotely with, with a scientist. I think it's not only difficult to achieve any kind of improvement, but it, it, it's very difficult to know that you have achieved anything or, or quantify it or measure it. I think that for us, it is always a, a very close dialogue. So it's not about, in a sense, it's not really about genres or, or rhetoric. What happens in, in the, the other sphere, the, the non-training sphere, if you like, that we're working in is that a writer will, will make contact either because they've written a paper and they're dissatisfied with it, or they're aware that there have been too many writers involved and the thing just doesn't have integrity, or the content is perhaps too important or too groundbreaking to, to risk miscommunication or to risk underrepresentation. And then uh, a very intense process begins where they, we ask them, I would ask them to send us links to current target research articles, in other words, recent ones, same field, comparable study from the target journal. And before I even would look at their text, I would do a very open-minded breakdown analysis of the three or four that they've sent me, not their own ones, looking for readability, potential for, I don't know, global readers. Is it, are they writing for a micro-community or are they writing in order to, to, to communicate with externals? Just trying to get a fix on the, on the, the current norms, the current readership assumptions, um, how much background facts seem to be necessary, all those kinds of things. So what is the current focus of the field as stated in these three or four articles they've sent me? So there's a lot of Google Scholar digging going on before I even look at their text. Then I would look at their text and I start to see potential comparison issues. So I, I might be able to see that it seems that in your field, people write abstracts like this rather than the way that you seem to have written it not right or wrong, good or bad, I'm just saying, or it, it seems that in your field people place that kind of technical detail at this point rather than where you've located it. Are you comfortable with that? I don't know. Titles seem to be, let's say, more predictive or, or it looks like most introductions in your field are beginning with metrics. That might be the case or beginning with applications. And then just on the basis of years and years and years of analysing, I mean, we spoke last time, Daniel, about the graft. It doesn't come cheap, this graft. It's years of looking at this stuff and, and, and being able to smell discomfort on the page, if you like, being able to, to feel that, you know, the order of information is making me jump around or, or there's a big, what I would call a so what factor. You're telling me things, you know, there are sentences here, there are concepts here, but I don't know why you're telling me as a reader it because there's a lack of narrative. The, 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 the function of the information hasn't been made clear to the reader, or it's not driving toward the destination in any way. It just seems to be dancing in the breeze, or, or perhaps your paragraphs are incredibly long and they, and they don't seem to have a unified function. Can we do anything about that? All sorts of things start coming up at that point that, that derive from years of being able to feel discomfort. I'm sorry, I don't know any other way of, of putting it. But after a while, you 
You so some sort of some sort of disruption, some sort of internal yes. waver goes on. And, yeah, and so it's a confidence issue because I'm not a scientist. Okay, I, I have absolutely no science background whatsoever, and nevertheless, I can feel when there is a potential gap in the information for example, or whether there's, a, where there's a risk of something being too implicit. The, the bottom line is that whatever, we, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely complimented that you think that my writing is clear, but I can assure you that that too is hard won because it is always clear to the writer. The writer <laughs> never thinks that what they've written is not clear. So the, the issue of implicitness is, is always uppermost in my mind. And I might I don't know, I might be seeing a places where I don't, a text where I cannot, for the life of me, work out what the achievement of this study is. And that may be because to the writer, it seems obvious. Yeah. There are all yeah. sorts of things going on there. And I think we have to remember that internet reading has reduced the amount of time that readers are willing to spend on a research article. It's now averaging averaging 30 minutes, which means that in some cases it's three minutes or one minute or two minutes or four minutes just to make up that, that average. And what that tells us immediately is that the reader expects to be able to read effortlessly. And that's really important. And all of this occurs for me before I then meet the person that I'm working with. And then it's all about asking them questions. Is this, is this concept central? Does it need more narrative to show how important it does? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of ownership ambiguity, what I would call ownership ambiguity, where it seem, where it's obvious again to the writer that this is their work or their idea, but either because of the grammar or because they haven't bothered to make it clear, they can lose their work in a moment. I'm just thinking of one that I read. I don't know if I mentioned this one last time. In an abstract, I saw the phrase, kinetic analyses suggest that blah, blah, blah. And that's in the abstract. And it was absolutely unclear from that whether those kinetic analyses are those that in the past have been carried out or whether this is a reference to, one, to the analyses in this text. So even phrases like, in the study reported here, or here, comma, the kinetic analyses suggest, even things like that, you can lose your work in a moment, bearing in mind that most people only read the abstract. If yeah, that's what's yeah. in your abstract, you can lose years of your hard work. So and, like and it's your experience and it's your experience that that the, the people that you work with uh, there at Imperial, when you notice that a here, or in this study needs to be added to the sentence that they they recognize what it is that you've seen Absolutely. because i suppose i suppose the the counter argument which i'm still trying to pursue a bit um despite the fact that i it's not mine but the counter the counter argument is is that um let's say Yes, but the expert knowledge, uh, the expert uh, area, uh, I can't say it right now, uh, the, the disciplinary expert in that area is going to understand where those analyses were made. I haven't, I, I, it's very rare that somebody says it's obvious because my comeback would normally be, is, is there any way that we could 
make it more obvious. Mm, <laughs> and sometimes mm. it's, it's. I mean, when I was talking before about the so what factor, the idea that information, qua information, has a function is simply, it, it's simply not true. Information just sits there on the page like a, like a piece of wet lettuce. What the reader needs is a narrative or comment that gives the, that information a function. So you might say, I don't know, this method has a highly negative or a high negative power to weight ratio. I don't care. I mean, but if you add at the beginning of the sentence, the disadvantage of this method is that then you've given that information a function. And it's precisely those kinds of things that make it more readable. Look, I mean, most softwares now have um, readability. You can you can get a readability index on your on your writing, and uh, I mean I haven't dug deeply enough into what makes it readable, but I suspect that narrative. It's very interesting. I mentioned Julie King before our, our director, and one of the things that she said has always stuck in my mind, which is that if you hold the text in your hand, open your fingers slightly and let the science content drop out. What's left in your hand should be the narrative and the comment. And if your hand is empty, then you've written a report. You haven't written a text. And I think that's a really important distinction is that there is this belief that the information speaks for itself. It's simply not true. People are not willing, readers are not willing to invest the time to work out what your information is doing. It is your job as a writer to be explicit about the function of the information in relation to the aim, the, the achievement, where, where are you, the, the question you're trying to answer. I mean, that's exactly what you what <laughs> I mean you achieved so you achieved for me for this reader and 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 I'm sure with your background at, at Imperial for so many other writers and readers and, and in this edition there will be many more um, such clarity on so many issues where there's never been a really satisfactory answer so for example in the uh, results section I mean many of the bi biologists I teach um, here in Heidelberg they say they begin their results from figures. And if they were, if it was left to them, that would be also where they ended. <laughs> and, and, and there's always this this discomfort with the fact that I've got to write up my results section. And yet you, it, it just clicked for me so clearly right now while you were speaking, but also in the book where you say, yeah, but the information doesn't speak for itself. The results never speak for themselves. Absolutely. And Absolutely. if you leave it up to the readers, you're not going to be happy with what you get. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, and that, and therefore, uh, we write up results. And I just thought, yeah, good. I mean, there's so many moments like that in the book. You know, you want your, you don't want the conclusions to your paper to. It's not a mystery novel. You don't want it to be an exciting shock at the end. What you want is that the thing will open almost like a flower. That it'll be that you'll make the the you'll comment in your results and show how they drive towards the conclusions that you want to make. Otherwise, your reader may be going in a slightly different direction from, from you. So all of those things, I mean, I think for me, there's a, it's the difference between going to, I don't know, going to an art gallery and, you know, and you quite like looking at the paintings and it's a lot of fun, but sometimes when people tell you something about it, 
the paintings are not just a visual experience, they make sense in a particular way. You might be able to see the development of the of the of the artist through their life and what they've done, how they've moved, how they've developed. Knowing it's knowing about what you are seeing. It's it's so interesting that when I look at the guide to writers, guides that, you know, when people talk about what you should and shouldn't do in a research article, you will almost always hear somebody saying, uh, the results section, you shouldn't you shouldn't be making any comments or implications. On, and people are told specifically, don't do this. The implications are just for the discussion section. The results are what the results are, and the discussion section is for what the results mean. And the fact is, if you don't include language in the way you write about your results that communicates what they mean, then the disjunct between the right the results section and the discussion section is going to have a really negative impact on how people accept what you've said. Effectively, you know, the reader needs to not just know what your method is, they need to accept the validity of your method. So you need to be validating and justifying choices. They don't just need to see what your results are. They need to know what you think those results mean. Whether or not they agree with them is is immaterial. They still need to know what you think they mean. So even, I mean, the things that I'm suggesting in the book are things like quantity language can really be helpful. So if you say that something occurred on, I don't know, on 15% of occasions, it's kind of meaningless. But if you say it occurred on only 15%, suddenly it's clear that you figure that you're thinking of that as a low level. Or if you say it occurred on as many as 15%, suddenly you've made it look big. And these things are fairly oblique and, and, and implicit, if you like, clues to the reader about what you think about your results. And they're really yeah. important. And yeah, I mean, they're terribly important. And the really interesting thing here, to come back to the broader question that I was trying to explore when I brought up this idea that scientists I know are very welcoming of, of the engagement that your method brings, but somewhat cautious as to having, let us say, science outsiders <laughs> involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, I mean, you'll remember the, the points there that I brought up that, they, they, mm-hmm. that they're concerned about. But your beautiful Judy King's beautiful image mm. of the article, what's left when you let the science drop out? What, what are you holding in your hands? Mm. And that is that narrative wrap. Fantastic image. And that is precisely what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, that is that is where, for me, it is on the language end, or the I called it rhetoric before. I'll, I'll call it rhetoric again. I think we all know what I mean. It is on the it is on the rhetoric end that the scientist can rely also upon another expert. I mean, scientists are so used to relying on experts all the time, other experts, right? And, and it surprises me that in the area of language, which is half of their science, that they that they would be reluctant to. I mean, just that point that you say about. Everybody's saying, don't put evaluation into your results, and yet evaluation is there. And, and you even say in the book, um, and have told me on other occasions, the scientists themselves have to be, that has to be pointed out to them. I mean, yes. you know, yes. they're, they're missing things that we're not, for example. And the other, and the, just, to, just to round out my, my point here, the idea that you would 
be collaborating with someone who knows about the writing as a scientist. Yeah, you're the scientist, you've done the research, and you're collaborating with somebody who is on the editing or the writing end, not remotely in any sense of the mm. word, as you say, shoulder to shoulder. Um, this, again, seems to me should come so natural to many scientists. I've often thought of it, and this seems to characterize very much your unique uh, approach to, uh, doing, to doing STEM uh, communication together with scientists and students. It, it seems to be a major extension of one of the sort of foundations of writing instruction, and that is the writing consultation. Right. Where very often done in peer settings, but it can be done in any sort of a setting where, as you as you described it, questions are coming to the writer. So what are you trying to say here? Why did you make this decision? I've seen other similar types of texts do this or that in no way setting up rules or making a model in dialogue, figuring out. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think, look, I mean, Daniel, I've been very fortunate at Imperial is that it's the the people that I work with are very open-minded and I've never I mean there's no imposing yourself on somebody they come and say look you know we want this we want some of what you've got you guys at the at the center have got to offer okay we've got this this great paper and it keeps foundering or we just we just we're just aware that we're not hitting it and it, it's not the, the the bell the bell sound that comes out is not a perfect chime can we realign? Can we get this in better shape? So it's a very mutually respectful dialogue that goes on. And sometimes, you know, we can work on, on a paper for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And it's not a quick fix thing. It's if you if you ask a writer, look, you've said this, would all your potential readers know enough about this to proceed from this point? No. So let's build back. What would he and then you work with them on how to, to build back the minimal, the irreducible minimum amount of information that they've got to insert at this point. I mean, I've I've always said that my my that not knowing the science is really helpful. Because if I if I would I never have the guts to do this in humanities. Never. I don't think that this this process works for humanities, because if I was involved in 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 a consultation with somebody who had written, I don't know, written about philosophy or literature or whatever, it would be really difficult for me not to confuse my understanding of the my own understanding of the content with what needs to be done to make the content understandable, because I understand it because I understand it. But with science, it's just not true. And I, I would put it to you that nobody working in ESAP at this level can possibly, even, even if I had a PhD in quantum physics, I could not possibly understand cutting edge research in public health as well as geophysics, as well as bioengineering. It's just not going to happen. So there's no way in any case that a professional, an ESAP professional can have that level of knowledge. And I think that once you do have that level of knowledge, not only do you start confusing your own understanding with whether or not the text is communicating well, but also there begin to be ownership issues of if you do suggest things, who's who owns that content after you've made changes? Because you've made changes based on your knowledge of the science. So for me, that's a real, uh, that's something I, I wouldn't want to touch. That really is blurring the boundary between myself and the expert. Yeah, sure. The ownership is one thing. I mean, 
without a doubt. Um, but I find even more fascinating what you say about the effectiveness of it. I mean, you've just taken the age-old divide that worries so many EAP professionals, um, disciplinary knowledge, non-disciplinary knowledge, um, and, and you've just eradicated it. You've just taken it right out of there. You've, you've, you've said that's actually the divide that we leap over without even thinking about. Yeah, I mean, if we come at it right, um, we... We threw the graft, as you said. We yeah. threw our thorough familiarization of what this particular project and generally what projects of this region are doing um, bring to the table an expertise that actually increases the value of the research. I mean, that's, 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 that's one of the things. And what I find so interesting is you, you mentioned much earlier in our discussion, and I find it relevant here, this issue of confidence, because that that is that is tied together with the graft. You've also said in the other interview that we've had that that obviously increases your credibility with with clients. Um, clearly, um, that that I can see as well. But the issue of confidence is really interesting because very much of what's going on in applied linguistics is involving corpora. Mm. And you mentioned in your book two thousand five hundred articles. And I'm only going to assume that you and your team read all of those articles, <laughs> that you didn't have algorithms run upon them. No, you're right. We did not. Have yes. OK. Yes. And, 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 and this and this I find fascinating because this 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 to me has always intuitively made more sense. I mean, in an era of AI, you've put the person back into what's going on here and you have to affect because it is only the person who can make decisions about narrative raps. It's only the person who can make decisions about what is the proper question to get this expert sitting across on the table from me to think the right things for them. I, I don't have on my end as, as the rhetorician any answers, but I need to formulate just the right questions. Translation apps and AI are not that far yet. Absolutely agree. And I think that that's such an interesting way of saying it is needing to formulate the right questions. And it's that that is where I mean, it's I'm speaking about 2500 research articles, it can be done on less. But at a certain point, you start to understand the kind of questions you need to ask. And they are almost always the same questions to everybody that you're working with. Is that the questions themselves, the, the 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 question areas, occur over and over and over again? If there there are there are issues with um with the order of the content, there are things. I mean, there are things that you notice that come in so many first or second drafts, and uh, and you those questions start to be the same questions every time after after a certain period of time and and that the fact that you are asking those questions and getting meaningful answers adds to your confidence so if for example the, it's quite normal for people to think that the reason i don't understand this text is because i don't understand the science and that unfortunately means that you don't interrogate what's going on in the text at that point. But if you're confident enough to say, um, it seems to me that there is a potential information gap at this point, or, or, or it, it seems to me that, um, that your 
subtitle, given that none of the keywords in your subtitle are appearing in the subsection, it seems to me that there's not a good enough fit between the subtitle and the contents of the subsection. And these things, and is that the case? And you know, it's an open question, but almost always those that, that interrogation, those questions start to produce a text that flows better, is more readable. And I think, I mean, in my experience, people that I've worked with are are eager. Why shouldn't they be eager? Why wouldn't they be eager to get the thing reading better, to get it communicating better? It seems so obvious that you would and, want and to. And there you say it as well. It's, it, it's not just about reading better in a flow. I mean, that is clearly one of the results, but it's communicating yeah. better. Because you're not ending accurately. up. Exactly, exactly. Mm. I mean, you bring in so many um, different areas where this happens in the language. I mean, you talk about the uh, certainty continuum. Yeah. Uh, it was it was in your entire discussion of the certainty continuum. And, and just for the listeners, uh, really, all we mean there is, I mean, what is the difference between it might rain tonight or it, it will rain tonight, uh, it's going to rain tonight and so on, right? I mean, there's a million different ways in English to... I mean, I think you break it down into about eight or nine different levels of certainty. Um, and I mean, this this moment in the book for me, just another aside, I, <laughs> I'm full of asides today, was also one of the moments where I realized you're not just helping writers. You're actually improving science. I mean, oh, this, I this, this, this is clearly one of those moments where you can see that if more people expend the effort to read in this fashion, this reverse engineering fashion, and then to try to adopt the proper ways of writing so that their message gets out, not proper ways as in, yeah, the right form of the verb, but proper ways so that readers make sense of it, then we're also going to end up with less studies that that that, that people are guessing at. I oh, mean, God. Gosh. Yes. Yeah. Who wants to be guessing at, you know, the certainty of a result? That's, <laughs> That's such an important point, Daniel. That's such an important point. Because for many, I mean, first of all, there are cultural issues here is that in some cultures, you don't overstate the power of what you've done. You don't do much chest beating. And in other cultures, you kind of do. So it's about kind of, it's about finding a, a, a normal, aligned a, a path, at the very least, that the language that you use should be aligned with the power of the findings, let's say. And finding your location, if you think about the this certainty continuum as going from, you know, gee, I don't know, I speculate, who knows, who the hell knows, all the way up to this is an absolute truth. Yeah, in terms of what you think about your results and what you think about the, the level of, of, of power or certainty. The important thing is to find your, if you like, almost your physical location along that certainty continuum and see what the language is that matches that level of certainty and ensure that that level, that, that language is consistent through your paper. So that's a, such an important point is, is being able to communicate how sure you are. Look, we are seeing, for example, and I spoke before about how fast science is developing. Certainly in uh, in the physical sciences, in the life sciences, titles to research articles, it's quite common to see modal verbs. X may do Y. Yeah? For may, might, 
could, we're, we're, oh, and certainly May, less could, but certainly May is coming into, uh, May and Suggest are coming into titles. And that's partly to do with the speed that you need to get your findings out. <laughs> but also you are entitled to publish before certainty. You cannot possibly wait until you're certain, because if you do that, somebody else is for sure going to leapfrog you. So you publish mm. the level and you make sure that your language reflects the level of certainty that you're able to state at this time. Even things like verb tense, I try to say in the book that there's even choosing the right verb tense here communicates the level of certainty. So that if you use past simple, we found that, I don't know, the pressure increased past simple ED is quite different from we found that the pressure increases. Just choosing a different verb tense communicates a different level of, of commitment to the findings that you, that you have. And this is, th these kinds of things are hugely important in terms of your credibility, your reputation, all, all those things. You know, la language is, I don't know, I'm endlessly fascinated by language. <laughs> so, so am I. I mean, you're, you're, speak, you're, you're preaching to the converted for sure, but um, I'm sure many listeners are, are, are very interested in, in, in past tenses and, and the significance that they have for um, what the science actually means. And in fact, I mean, we haven't been able to take apart the reverse engineering um, method. Uh, I'll leave that to the readers of the book. Um, but in essence, what is going on to speaking of language, is that you're showing the difference between what the sentence is saying and what the sentence is doing. Yeah. And you're bringing very clear, drawing it out, distilling it right there on the page. Um, the book is just absolutely loaded with examples which make already clear descriptions entirely illustrative. So um, I would say it works fantastic as a self-study. <laughs> Could easily be taught as well, though. Um, but you're, you're you're distilling it, bringing it up to the surface on the on the page. What it is that the function of a particular sentence is, and this brings us back to the narrative wrap. We understand now why we happen to have said we the, uh, what we've said, and then we can start to calibrate and adjust how we're saying it so that the function aligns with the content. I like the calibrating concept. That's really nice. It is about, it's about, first of all, finding out what happens and then hopefully in the book, enabling the, enabling you to see how it happens so that you can do it yourself. It's trying to produce, if you like, a strategic toolkit that you can have as, have behind you as a, as a safe space to, to measure yourself against, to look back and check against that, that kind of, against that toolkit. Yeah. Whereas in I think many, many books on writing do talk a lot about what either what you should or shouldn't do, which is something I definitely don't, because no, I, there's no possibility of doing that. It's not about reverse engineering is not telling you what you should do. It's just trying to make you aware of what people in your field do do. <laughs> so and that, that's, your, that, that's what you're looking at. It's not uh, some kind of omniscient. Uh, ESAP professional saying you should do this, you shouldn't use passive, you should whatever. It's just this is what's happening. If I if I'm asked about prepositions, you know, I can certainly say, well, what I can see is that prepositions like with are dropping out of research articles. Why? Because research is becoming more global and with is a killer preposition. It has too many meanings. It's too ambiguous. So I can say this is what's happening. We're seeing people 
um, the, the word using is being used instead of with. Yeah, so we did this using a whatever it is, a mass using mass spectrometry, if you like, rather than with. So I can look at what there is, describe what there is, enable people to describe for themselves what there is, what there is in the text, and then offer some ways of some how, if you like. So it's not just what, hopefully, it's how. So being told to write, as I often do, Make sure you write a clear title. That's one that really kills me. You know, so how do I do that? <laughs> I always think I think my title is clear. You know, write write clearly. Make sure that your writing is coherent. If you're not taught exactly how to make it coherent via good sentence to sentence linkage, then you've no idea what coherence means. So it's the how yeah. as well as the what. Exactly right. I mean, that's where the book finds itself is right in that nice little adverb depending on your school of thought <laughs> the how right i mean it, it doesn't leave you with these sort of general statements um even if they're illustrated it's not enough right if yeah. even if you end up with 10 sentences that show you this is what clear looks like you're still thinking well how do i do it right yeah. and, and, and why, and why what, is that clear what's wrong with mine yeah you know? yeah exactly yeah. Um, Hillary, you've been very generous with your time. There's one last uh, little question, which I hope stays little, that I'd, I'd like to explore. And, and this is this idea that um, the writing is part of the research. The writing mm. is the research. And and it would seem that there's fewer and fewer STEM uh, researchers who need to be convinced of that. What your book, for me, shows is that the reading is also the research. And that is a big one, I think, because A, I find that probably many uh, STEM researchers out there are missing how much time they spend in the literature and are perhaps seeing it as time away from the lab rather than time in their actual own study, which they're writing or even just thinking about. Um, but the other end of it is you have created a tool, a technique, um, a, a methodology, and that is your reading. Your reading of the literature, you STEM researchers, is teaching you another method for your research, a way of writing. Uh, there, there's no question, unfortunately, attached to this. <laughs> I suppose I, I suppose what I'm, I'm just asking is, um, do you see that connection as well? Absolutely. And the, one of the things I'm very often saying in, in uh, with early stage researchers is, is, look, your reading is clearly effective because you understand your field okay and you're an expert in your field but your writing is operating at a different location from your reading and what you need to be doing is bringing the two closer together so that they are in a sense a mirror image of each other so that you're using your reading to feed your writing you're using the reading as a bridge into the writing rather than assuming that the two can exist in separate orbits if you like so that, that's absolutely the case. And that is essentially that's what the reverse engineering is about, is being an active reader. So that instead of creating text, you're starting to see how content is delivered in your field and trying to deliver it in similar ways. So the it, the thing that your, your content is not your problem. It's making sure that the way that you deliver it is in alignment with the norms of your field. Well, thank you very much. That is Hilary Glassman-Deal, and her book, Science Research Writing for Native and Non-Native Speakers of English, is out 2021 with World Scientific. 
I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Hillary. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.